0: In the western Amazon, north of the Andes, a sacred brew is shared in times of illness, suffering, or when one's soul is ready, ready to uncover a part of ourselves that inverts waking reality and calls forth a primordial truth, a root with its tendrils anchored in the abyss, reaching up to the stars. Beware what you may encounter as you descend or ascend this sacred vine, trial by fire or assimilation with bliss. Choose to dance with Grandmother Ayahuasca, she sets the tempo, the rhythm, and all while you trip the light fantastic under the bioluminescent glow of her etheric oral radiance, shining upon your netherworld a subtle moonbeam, illuminating the ineffable. Today's guest has ventured to this Amazon jungle, over the Andes Mountains, and into the heart of his own psyche, starting the Ayahuasca Foundation to help others experience the ineffable too. Joining me today is Carlos Tanner, founder of the Ayahuasca Foundation. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for joining us tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast.
1: ...so single atom in the body of this giant organism that is the Earth. The Earth, I don't think like, made a mistake. I, I, I don't think that human race's departure, at least Western civilization's departure, away from the ancestral perspective was a mistake. I actually think that it's just something that we're not capable of understanding simply because we're just too infinitesimally small in the grand picture of things. And I liken that to what pregnancy might look like from a cellular consciousness level. The departure of the human race away from that ancestral paradigm in order to do what we have done, which is accelerate technology and build a bunch of shit that we kind of feel like is messing it up because we're comparing it to the way we imagine the world to have operated for you know the, the entirety of its existence prior to this departure. And, and I guess what I think is that the earth is like in the middle of a birthing process, and, and we're, we just don't understand it, but that the earth will give birth to something, and perhaps that needs to be you know, sending spaceships to other planets to, to, to seed life on other planets. Just as, for example, the ayahuasca vine produces these delicate flowers after which it produces an aeronautic vehicle that looks like the wing of a helicopter with a seed in it. And that helicopter seed falls off the vine and flies away with this helicopter flight to a distant part of the forest to, to plant the seed. So plants create aeronautic vehicles to disperse their seeds far away. And is that what the Earth does too? But the Earth's so peculiar that it doesn't produce this like helicopter seed, it produces more like a rocket ship that gets launched out to another planet to seed that planet and in order to do that it needs like this departure you know it needs people that like kind of look like they're fucking shit up but they're actually still following the plan that is this infinite wisdom and guidance of the consciousness of the planet Began, well, it's hard to say when our stories began, I guess, but I in 2003, uh, almost exactly 19 years ago today, I traveled down to Peru to the Amazon rainforest in Iquitos, attended five ceremonies led by a shaman called Don Juan Tangoa, and I, at that time, was struggling with opiate addiction, and I came to realize through that process of healing with ayahuasca, in those ceremonies led by don juan that the real issue i was struggling with was childhood trauma but i was oblivious of it i knew there was something you know i knew there was something wrong with my relationship with my mother especially but I, i didn't like understand it or wouldn't have called it trauma because i i simply didn't remember the events until i drank ayahuasca in ceremony with juan and um my second ceremony, really, I saw a scene play out that I instantly remembered. And, and that enabled me to um, replace an inaccuracy of my interpretation at the time as a child with a more accurate interpretation of the event, and ultimately resolve the guilt that I had been living with my whole life, which had transformed into truths that I lived with, like personal statements about myself that were detrimental to my well-being and ultimately were causing me to want to try to uh, block them out you know dull my my senses with opiates and and other drugs and drinking and so these are like negative self-beliefs you were harboring yeah exactly and they were the result of childhood traumas where experiences had occurred where i i you know, didn't understand them and wasn't capable of accurately understanding them because I was only eight or nine years old at the time. But being able to relive them and really like see them as almost like being in a dream, I was able to like instantly replace them with a more accurate understanding and interpretation. And that it was like pulling the roots, you know, everything that was attached to that root that had been growing for decades quickly died off and and i was able to come into a new understanding or self-perception and that was like so marvelous to me it was so like amazing you know how how something could happen like that and and the reality of the ayahuasca experience was so fascinating to me and in the third ceremony the corandero uh, we, we call them coranderos instead of shaman and uh don juan told me that it was my path to be a healer. And he invited me to live with him and he would teach me. So in uh, January of 2004, I moved to Iquitos, Peru and I moved in with Don Juan and his family and I lived with him for four years. And at the end of that four years I uh, came up with the idea for the Ayahuasca Foundation so I started that in 2009 and yeah we've been operating for over 12 years now.
0: Wow wow really perilous fun I'm sure at times astounding but to go all the way from the states right to Peru I mean geez what a what a culture shock and then on top of that you're going into another dimension (laughs) with Ayahuasca but before we get To that, you said you were going through about opium, certain addictions maybe, traumas. Was there a point when you were still in the States before you went to Peru where you realized like, hey, ayahuasca is something I need to do to heal? How did that idea come into your mind? Was it a friend that suggested like, hey, you might benefit from this was it a book you were reading where where did that seed initially get planted yeah totally
1: um i mean i i guess there was it was a chain um but the specific seed for ayahuasca was planted by me reading the book the way of the shaman and by michael harner and unfortunately michael harner decided to take out those chapters and thankfully, in the copy that I read, which was back in, in the early 90s, it still had the original chapters of how the book opened. And, uh, and so he told his own story with ayahuasca, and that's how he found uh, the shamanic path. And, and so that was when I first really learned about ayahuasca. But before that, what, why I read The Way of the Shaman was by reading um, Carlos Castaneda. And before that, you know, I, I wanted to read Carlos Castaneda because I had been introduced to mushrooms by my older brother. And so right off the bat, I had like an affinity towards the psychedelic experience. But I also had like this, uh, I don't know, academic motivation to learn more about it. Uh, I studied philosophy in college. So, you know, that kind of like fit right in. Uh, I even studied the philosophy of religion and got a taste of like shamanism in my in my classes you know in college but yeah it was really that book way of the shaman that introduced me specifically to ayahuasca and then that led me to find terence mckenna and uh, the Yahay letters william s burroughs and start to do kind of like research on ayahuasca where i was looking online um this is the 90s so even the internet wasn't like very well you know you didn't just have the internet you know you were like special if you had the internet so I had a job where I had a full-time internet connection and I like started researching it and making notes and like really kind of becoming passionate about it Mm.
0: yeah no I I totally am in that take it for granted generation because you know eight years old my mom's home computer was available to me whenever she wasn't working. So, you know, I got in on the the early net and played around. Definitely wasn't savvy or smart enough to go anywhere past the average 8-bit game that you can find for free on all those sites back then. But there was a certain allure that kept me interested in this fringe stuff. Now, I'm holding The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner in my hand. This book has been absolutely... Uh, fundamental for me I don't think I would be here without it I of course I have never done ayahuasca but this book really in a similar way I'm sure to you opened up a whole new reality you know and it's written in such a way where because I was fancying becoming an anthropology major I didn't realize how (laughs) lofty a goal that was especially starting at a community college can't really go anywhere in anthropology, but I read this book, and I'm not sure if I have the revised edition or not because I have uh, Michael Harner's story here on the first chapter with a blue jay-headed deck uh, crew of of boatmen, right? This sole canoe that he rides on, and there's like these sort of almost Egyptian-looking figures with the heads of birds and alligators and so on. Absolutely mind-bending stuff, and it's what I expected from hallucinations. You know, I'd heard about LSD and all these other things in high school, smoking pot with my buddies, and I had always pictured it the way Michael Harner described, maybe not as sacred, not with the sacred symbolism. I was picturing Bugs Bunny and other cartoon characters would be waiting for me on the other side of my trip. But when I read this, I was like, wow, this is not... This is not just fun games. He is going on what seems like a very precise, ritualized journey, right? He's getting on a boat. There are these deities there. Is this the part that you're referring to? Do I have an old copy of the book or am I I off here? Oh man, you're now you're like testing my <laughs> recollection of the book.
1: I read that book like thirty years ago. No, okay, I don't um, want to put you on the spot, Carlos. I'm yeah, just, I'm just. I haven't gone back to it. You know, I haven't yeah. like read it again. It started. It was a huge um, step forward for me. But I, I guess what happened really is that once I found Terence McKenna, I, I, I didn't look back from him, and and then even then, like now, I would view Terence McKenna. Uh, as the true pioneer that he was but that you know there's been so many more developments and it's, it's such a like a science um, you know in terms of like making a discovery and and what's happened in the last 50 years has been kind of insane in in terms of the progression and the awareness so the fact that you and i are even talking about ayahuasca right now is kind of crazy because it's
0: it's all happened really in the last
1: generation
0: yeah yeah and terence mckenna another one of those pivotal thinkers that you know i'm sure many people can say they've spent a few nights sifting through those many many lectures you can find on youtube i've used some of his lectures for little clips here in this podcast because they're so brilliant even one sentence quip can be enough to send you spinning but Let's go back to your story, Carlos. There's so many inspirational people who have pointed us down this path, but the point is to walk the path yourself. So, when you got to the South American continent, what was that like? What, I mean, was it scary? Were you were you thinking about going home? Were you you know dead set on doing this ayahuasca? What was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone has, uh, a, it's so hard to try to like uh, encapsulate the essence of the story because there's so many details, you know, but I had actually gone to Peru in uh, January 1st of 2000 as a tourist and I went to Machu Picchu and I went with, uh, with a friend from the US who was Peruvian. So I stayed with her family and um, it was very like, safe at least in lima and then i got on a bus by myself and took a bus over the andes mountains to get to machu picchu and that was definitely an adventure <laughs> but um but i was like i don't even remember i guess i could figure out the math but i was 20 something you know and three maybe and i um you know i was like ready for adventure. Uh, I didn't speak Spanish, but I, you know, I, I I learned and through my friend had made some of friends, some friends with her family friends. So, because I had spent time in Lima living in her house before I went to Machu Picchu. So when I came back to go to the Amazon, I, um, I spent time in Lima one because my luggage got lost. So even though I was traveling by myself in a, in a foreign country, I had been there before. And, and thankfully one of the friends that I had made on that trip was a taxi driver. So he was like really, really helpful for me. And of course I used like a a guidebook. Um, I don't remember which one, but you know, there's like four or five different country guidebooks out there and, and it had a page called Amazon by bus. And it was like this really inexpensive way to get to the Amazon. And the way it explained it, it seemed like another adventure. I'd taken a bus over the Andes to get to Machu Picchu. So maybe I'll take a bus over the Andes in a different direction and then take a boat down the Amazon River. But yeah, that was totally not easy at all. Um, but it was another adventure. And I think I just loved adventure. You know, I loved um not really knowing like what was going to happen. And like I said, I had an affinity for psychedelics and I think that if you have an affinity for psychedelics, chances are you also have an affinity for adventure. Um, and, and so, yeah, when I got on, I got on a boat in Pucallpa that I had taken a bus to Pucallpa and I just made friends on the way. Like I made friends on the bus. So I ended up staying with a friend in Pucallpa that I'm, I made on the bus and, who lived in pucallpa and and those friends helped me to like make sure i got on the boat which was a total like crazy scene and and then on the boat i made friends with people on the boat that lived in iquitos and then stayed with them when i got to iquitos and you know so i was always i always felt like i was taken care of but i i made sure to you know make those connections and and meet those people to to do my best to like feel that safety i guess but but it was always like uh, on the level of adventure for me
0: Mm. now as you're adventuring this is all prerequisite to the ayahuasca or after okay yeah that was to get to the place where the ceremonies would be held and now i'm imagining if you have to go one bus to another bus to a boat, you must be going to a pretty remote area, or at least you know hard to get to from via modern means. That's right. Iquitos is the largest city that's not accessible
1: by road. Wow. It's it's so is I mean it's that's even an understatement. It's literally like I don't know, eight hundred miles or a thousand miles from the next road. <laughs> you know, like it's it is definitely a remote location, but it's a half a million people. It's kind of crazy uh, that the city built up so much and it has its own history that has to do with the rubber boom uh, back in the eighteen hundreds when when they realized they could make rubber like a viable product and mm. that became the hub of the rubber boom.
0: Yeah, I so heard I heard I'm, a sort of unrelated story about place called fordlandia down there <laughs> the ford company henry ford went down and tried to buy his own country uh in order to make like a monopoly state for rubber and and it sort of devolved into a lord of the fly situation where everybody who represented ford company left and you know everybody who had remained was just sort of like cargo culting around with the factory parts <laughs> right i don't know that story that's pretty crazy yeah it's wild but to to put that in perspective of your your journey i mean the amazon is immense it's huge right so uh, that could have happened you know on the entirely other side of the amazon so let's not get down in the weeds there but tell us more about this city and this this atmosphere you know is this a place where ayahuasca has been used for a long long time was it sort of a trend because of a lot of western a lot of americans kind of becoming interested in this or or was this sort of like a tradition that it existed there you know for a long time what what's the what was the atmosphere there like yeah Iquitos is really just an access point um because of the
1: rubber boom they have an airport you know they have like a a city there is tourism so if you wanted to go to the amazon rainforest, like iquitos would be your best chance um but iquitos itself which is named after the iquitos indians or the tribe the iquitos who i don't think exist anymore um but that's not really like that you know it's a city it's but it's a city in the in the middle of the rainforest and you go in any direction you go 50 miles in any direction you're just in the middle of the rainforest you know um and so there are tribes nearby but if you want to access pretty much anywhere you're going to like go to Iquitos so it's become the hub of the ayahuasca tourism industry uh around Iquitos there's probably like 250 ayahuasca retreat centers or or places where you can go to attend ayahuasca ceremonies now wow um so it's really like the the global hub for ayahuasca
0: now is it endogenous to that area or is this indicative of the rubber boom and access to you know this particular region of the world does it actually grow in this area the the Banisteriopsis vine or or is this sort of imported to this area
1: Oh yeah no um definitely it's it, it's endemic to the to the western amazon uh which is kind of interesting to be honest cuz i i did do uh, quite a bit of research on that like it's really just the western amazon that has ayahuasca um the eastern half of the amazon rainforest is not known to have ayahuasca or to have any indigenous tribes that use it but the western half is like 100 tribes uh literally like 108 tribes have a historical culture of using ayahuasca and that spans like thousands of miles and you know to the north and the south and the east and the west of that band of of what could be called the western amazon rainforest um almost just up to the border of peru it's kind of weird once it got into once you get into brazil that side of the amazon doesn't have very much use of ayahuasca which is i thought was interesting um so yes it does grow in that region and it grows like throughout the amazon and like i said there's like over 100 tribes that have a history of using ayahuasca and those tribes are so far apart and the amazon is so uh like challenging to to travel it it seems like it's just like nearly impossible to imagine that someone was like going all the way there with to share this knowledge, you know, I don't know if it had like a a central uh, beginning, like mm-hmm. to understand how to use it, um, especially because ayahuasca is a combination of two plants. And I think from work with anthropologists and and most especially the ethnobotanist uh, Richard Evan Schultes, who spent 14 years in the Amazon in the 40s, um, we know that most of the tribes started by just using the ayahuasca vine on its own. And then the majority of those tribes then at some point began to mix it with an admixture plant and the most common admixture plant is the plant called chacruna, and so now the, the most common understanding of what the ayahuasca medicine is is a combination of Banisteriopsis vine, which is the ayahuasca vine, mixed with chacruna or Psychotria viridis, um, which are leaves of the of a plant that contains dimethyltryptamine. Mm. But the original ayahuasca. Uh, that was not believed to have a high concentration of dimethyltryptamine, and and that to me is also like curious, and I I have like some theories about how that all went down, um, but yeah, it's still pretty
0: mysterious. And can we let's keep, let's try to braid or broach those because I I too have a lot of questions and thoughts about this. I have, I'm familiar with you know the the fact that. You can take Banisteriopis and theoretically it could essentially work to pull the DMT out of any plant with high enough concentration, right? So the, the big mystery that always stood out to me, especially reading Michael Harner's book, is how exactly did these tribes discover the mixture because it's not like cannabis where you know if you just burn it and and accidentally smell it you might catch a contact high from you know a forest fire that has cannabis in it but you wouldn't necessarily have that same sort of situation with ayahuasca I I can't uh, conceive a, a situation where someone would just stumble upon it in that same way so what what exactly you know is it any plant that can mix with the the banisteriopsis vine or or do you think there's like a real sweet sort of science to this or or is it is it just what the tribes themselves say that the plants spoke to them and said hey put this with this yeah, I mean, uh, it's obviously it's going to be hard to like settle
1: down to proving any uh, any idea, but I certainly have my own ideas. Um, and I turned to Richard Evan Schultes as my main authority because... He was definitely like the OG, the, like the original uh, ethnobotanist to go down to the Amazon and spend such uh, tremendously, like profoundly deep work with the indigenous people. And also one of the first people, one, one of the first uh, Westerners or Americans to, to drink ayahuasca and, and write about it, uh, although he didn't write that much about it, but he wrote enough to kind of start to answer a few questions. And and one of the most curious I thought was he did drink ayahuasca with a tribe that did not use an admixture plant. And by that time, he had already come to a theory that is still recognized today, which is, you know, basically saying that ayahuasca is a is an orally activated DMT experience. So it's the dimethyltryptamine that's the active ingredient, but it's made orally active by the inhibition of an enzyme called monoamine oxidase or MAO. And so the vine contains an MAO inhibitor and that, prevent, uh, that prevents the production of the enzyme that would break down DMT which then makes it orally active that you could drink it and absorb it and it would still stay intact the dimethyltryptamine would stay intact and reach your brain and then produce that experience otherwise you would like smoke DMT to to send it like straight through the blood brain barrier into your brain and then it would only last like 15 minutes because your body would produce the enzyme to break it down so that's like the chemical perspective and and Richard Evan Schultes was aware of that chemical understanding and so even though he knew he was going to be drinking ayahuasca that did not contain dimethyltryptamine and wrote that he did not expect to have a very profound experience, he actually had one of the most profound experiences of all of his experiences with ayahuasca, but he said that the visions he had were not very brightly colored. They were mostly darker hues that were in the purples, instead of like being bright and having the full spectrum of colors that he had experienced in the other ceremonies that did have the dimethyltryptamine in the brew but that the content of the visions like what the meaning for him was was the most profound and so to me that's very important information because it really seems to me that he's speaking about making a connection with the spirit of ayahuasca which would fit with you know the 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 indigenous perspective and that It wasn't necessary to have the dimethyltryptamine to have the experience, but that the dimethyltryptamine would enhance our ability to have the experience by doing what the indigenous people say is by brightening the visions, by giving more light to the visions. And and so that is a big part of like my own perspective. Uh, I guess where I get creative with it is that I feel that we know that dimethyltryptamine exists in our bloodstream that we most likely produce it in our own brains and that all living beings actually produce dimethyltryptamine and in in rick strassman's book dmt the spirit molecule kind of elaborates on those theories um so i feel like humans that were living in the amazon rainforest probably had high levels of dimethyltryptamine and those in, in in their systems like naturally because they were living in the wild and they needed to have the highest perceptive senses you know they needed to have access to the most sensory information for their own survival because it was such a challenging place to live So they needed to have like the best vision and the best hearing and, you know, all of their senses needed to be extremely acute and dimethyltryptamine is related to that uh, expansion of, of sensory information, I'll call it, or the the spectrum whether it's expansion expanding or not but it is related to the sensory perceptive ability and and so if you were to you if you were already have a, a dmt level or that expanded sensory perceptive ability and then just take ayahuasca you would connect with the spirit of ayahuasca and you'd be able to learn from ayahuasca you would be guided by ayahuasca but when the spanish came they didn't just bring you know their conquistadors they with that they brought this kind of low vibrational frequency mm. because they they were they were bringing a low vibrational frequency of consciousness with them right and so they essentially like in uh, infected the consciousness of the rainforest, and they brought down the the consciousness of the humans. Mm. And that and that point, as that was happening, basically the humans were having more and more difficulty seeing and connecting with. The spirits of ayahuasca that they had been accustomed to. And at that point, ayahuasca was like, hey, you know, before you can't see me anymore, before we can't talk anymore, go get these plants, you know, go to get these other plants and mix it. So I do think that. That they were told to get the chacruna and the admixture plants by ayahuasca, but I think it's an important detail that they call it ayahuasca. You know, if if DMT was the the main ingredient, I think they wouldn't call it ayahuasca; they'd call it chacruna or something. You know, and you would also hear a lot more stories by talking to indigenous people or indigenous healers about what the chacruna spirit does. But you don't. Very, very few stories are told about interactions with the spirit of Chakruna. But many, many, many stories are told about interactions with the spirit of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think that chemists really have it correct when they try to attribute the entirety of the experience to the dimethyltryptamine but I think that the indigenous people themselves are probably and you know makes sense why more accurate in saying that the chakruna makes the visions brighter but that the visions themselves are the interaction with the spirit of the ayahuasca plant and that's why the ayahuasca plant has always been revered and named and you know for the the name of the medicine but also in naming in the spirit that they interact the most with when they're ingesting it does that make sense
0: absolutely wow and i really appreciate the breakdown because you might have noticed i'm sort of dancing around that and yeah i i've always I've always sort of suspected that the DMT sort of part of the equation was unnecessary because it's already in us it's in conceivably most living plants right it's there's a certain percentage of DMT in food items and you know and and I wonder to your point about lower consciousness if plants respond in a similar way when they're being agricultured as opposed to growing in the wild, right? How much of their natural DMT content is lost, not even considering all of the pesticides and whatnot that we use in modern farming, but just the, the unnaturalness of, of farming only 400 years ago, just the concept that they were using was unnatural. They're, they're creating monoculture farms that you know, take a plant out of its natural environment, take it out of the diversity that creates the full profile that allows for it to be as nutritious as it is. And to your point about, again, the Spaniards, there is a, a very, very powerful statement that stuck with me. A mentor of mine, he grew up in Arizona, he's a Native American, he told me that Columbus, when he named the, the people here Indians, he said that because they were indios, They had a relationship with God. They, they lived in God. And he said, and a lot of people nowadays, they, they'll tell you Columbus was the worst person in the world. And I'm not here to argue for or against that. But the point stands that this man, who was a Native American himself had a high amount of respect for Columbus and said he was one of the few Spanish that actually saw us for what we were at that point in time, which was of a more advanced spiritual attitude than the average European. So yeah, I I don't doubt that at all, that there was some sort of leveling, right? You have this high frequency consciousness and this low frequency consciousness what you know they don't smash the other one out they sort of level each other out and meet in the middle and unfortunately whoever's in that higher position has to take the take the dive right so and there's so much more that goes into it I mean people talk about the genocide that was the you know biological warfare and the diseases and all that but beyond that we see that the new world offered so many different plants to your point about, you know, ayahuasca being sort of a more of a central role and then all of a sudden the atmosphere, the energy field shifts. Now the natives are having to sort of strengthen their mixture, or not mixture, strengthen their, you know, what they're using were there any other plants? I mean, tobacco is one that I know is very important in ayahuasca ceremony, and it's sort of like the the best example of a plant that's been bastardized, right? Ayahuasca has been relatively unknown for the past however many 500 years pre uh, post-Columbus, but as far as tobacco goes, I mean, this is a staple crop, right? And nowadays, it's, it's a major cause of suffering but i don't think that the native americans were using tobacco and getting cancer right i mean what how does tobacco play into this that's a great question i mean to me um again like there's no written
1: history of the indigenous people in south america i don't think there's written history of the indigenous people in north america either but um i view tobacco as if not the original medicine, one of the core original plant medicines, you know that that people uh, when they were able to have contact with with A plant like tobacco, like where they were in a region where tobacco was growing, they just immediately recognized it to be one of the most powerful plant medicines that they find, and and so it quickly became the heart of most plant medicine traditions. If there was access to tobacco, Um, in in Peru, the Ashaninkas are a tribe that. Uh, is an example of that, like where tobacco to this day is still the core of their uh, plant medicine traditions. And so I think that when it comes to communing with a wise spirit of a plant, I really feel like tobacco was was the start. And then I, I if I had to guess, I would say like that people even found ayahuasca because tobacco was helping them to raise their consciousness or to raise their uh perceptive ability to the to to their awareness, uh, to the point where they could then like become aware of where they might connect with other beings or other plants that have a consciousness that would be valuable to their well-being and so i, I do think it all started and i agree with you 100 it's a real shame like what's happened to tobacco you know i i wish that there was like more specific language about it because most people you know just say oh you, you know you're smoking Marlboros, you're smoking camel cigarettes and then you get cancer that's because of tobacco but those studies don't um don't bear out when you start to just look at the natural tobacco and yeah of course like smoking something um if you habitually smoke something then it will be detrimental to your health but people would not smoke tobacco the same way you know because it didn't have those highly addictive chemicals added to it so you know there wasn't the it's very complex i guess but like you got people addicted to tobacco then the the, qual- the the contents that were getting them addicted were more detrimental but then the 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 rate at which it was being used was also unnatural so mm. they were basically like turning this sacred incredibly profoundly wise medicinal plant into something that was ultimately like destroying people because nowadays, I mean, if you smoke a pack of Marlboros a day, yeah, you're, you're doing some harmful stuff to yourself. But if you smoke a pipe of, you know, organically grown natural tobacco, then I, it would be a very different scenario in terms of the detriment to your health or benefit. I mean, there's a, I would say it's actually beneficial.
0: Yeah, no. And I, I agree. I think that's one of the one of those things that not everyone experiences. I happen to know an elderly person who smokes a pipe tobacco and <laughs> doesn't seem to bother them at all. You know, I've I've seen that man. I don't know him personally, but I know of him and he's very public about his little pipe there and uh, and he seems well into his 90s and I know there's there's plenty of cases going into the past they sort of popularized cigarettes but moving back to tobacco in a more sacred context I don't maybe I'm applying agency where there isn't any but I feel like there was a sort of alchemy that went into taking tobacco and bastardizing it because it's such a powerful medicine and and because it's so much more than it's you know ability to give you a buzz it's It's beyond that. They had had to alchemize it and reduce it down to that to take the power away from the people whose land they were also taking, right? So maybe I'm applying agency where there isn't any, but can we talk about the the sacred use of tobacco? Is it smoked out of a pipe traditionally? Uh, Is it burned? Is it offered? I've heard from my mentor that I should just sort of Use it as a, an offering and not burn it at all. How are they using tobacco today in the in the traditional context?
1: those ways. Um, I, I, if I were to guess, like I would say that tobacco was probably ingested like with a whole leaf ingestion or most likely like as a tea, like um, you know a concoction where you just soak the leaves in water and and drank it um but for very different reasons um the medicine tradition is you know like some medicines you take to like feel good i guess you could say but most medicines don't make you feel good <laughs> you know, you that. that's not why you take them um you take them for a specific reason and and so tobacco you know i would say is drank um to make that connection to build that relationship with the spirit of the of the plant um but also for its properties tobacco is really a psychedelic i mean it's a very like powerful powerful plant um the the tobacco that they that they use in the amazon though is a different family it's a different species rather it's the same family um and that family is nicotiana and then the, the tobacco that you would find like in a in a you know like gas station pack of cigarettes is a nicotiana tobacco so that's really like tobacco and then in in peru in the amazon rainforest where i work um, we smoke t- uh, nicotiana rustica, and that they call mapacho. And so mapacho is like very strong, and way too way is like too strong to put it in uh, a cigarette like here. You know,
0: people wouldn't they'd get like too. Could you too, could you smoke a blunt with it? <laughs> could you take the leaf and put cannabis inside and smoke yeah, it yeah.
1: like that? Yeah, they make cigars out of it. Um, but, you know, it's not like you're not going to be, like, just smoking a a cigarette of that while you're driving on the road. At least you wouldn't smoke the, the whole thing, thing, you know? <laughs> um, but I guess everybody's different. For me,
0: I'm still sensitive to uh, Mapacho. Mm. Um, but well, and it's it's very, very, very interesting because you are so right about this, like, lack of, of knowledge and language for tobacco because I uh, with the simple search here, I found nicotina rustica, also known as Aztec tobacco. But what I find more interesting is that it grows in Turkey, Vietnam, Russia, and South America as well. I don't know. It seems like there's sort of a theme there of of places, you know, these like places of conflict nowadays, but in the past, a lot of very we could say psychedelic cultures shamanism right. has been a part of all four of those very distinct regions from vietnam to russia to south america and and even turkey i mean a little more obscure and harder to find possibly but yeah it's it's really it's it's it seems like these plants have a place in our human world right and they're not just indicative to oh well these funky people in south america who the world didn't know about until a couple hundred years ago they had been using all these wild things like it seems like the rest of the world used to have these things and something happened where it was preserved in south america preserved in central america with the Maya and the Inca, how far does, does ayahuasca go back? I know you said there isn't a written history and that makes this sort of question difficult to answer, but you know, is there a sort of, is there a sort of oral tradition that talks about the ancient use of ayahuasca or, or is, are you more focused on the more practical things? Cause I don't want to take you out of your expertise either. If we're, if we're venturing too far out, then let me know.
1: <laughs> well, i appreciate you even like mentioning the word expertise although i might be that might might be contentious but um uh i i know that uh recently there was an article written i want to say in national geographic where they found someone in a cave by uh, like the I don't want to say mummified, but like the, whatever, the remains of someone who had a pouch that was made of a fox snout and it had some various medicinal plants in it, which was super interesting because it was deemed to be a thousand years old. They were able to, you know, carbon date it or however they figure out the age of, of something like a human remains. And it had medicinal plants that were like from all over South America which suggested that this person, and either there was a trade routes already or this person had traveled all over and, and found these plants. And, and so there was ayahuasca in his findings, but there was also like cocoa leaves and there was also San Pedro. There was like a bunch of different medicinal plants. This guy was definitely like a, a shaman in a really interesting way because he was kind of combining cultures, which you normally wouldn't see. Um, but that was 1,000 years ago. Then there's a, a mug that was that's on display in a museum in Ecuador that has ayahuasca residue in it. I say mug, chalice. Uh, <laughs> it's probably not a mug, but like, but you know, a, a vessel for drinking, and um, made out of stone, and that had ayahuasca residue in it. That was dated to be 5,000 years old. And one could probably assume that you're not like gonna chisel your first stone cup when you find ayahuasca you know like you're gonna have been drinking it for a while and someone eventually be like you know what we should do is make a stone cup for this thing because it's so special you know so it's pretty safe to assume that it's older than five thousand years if you want to go by that stone vessel in in the ecuador museum and then jeremy narby who's an anthropologist who wrote um uh fuck what's that book he wrote Well, uh, the cosmic serpent, um, he he basically guessed that it's probably been used for over 10,000 years. But it's important to note that it was probably used for over 10,000 years as a singular vine. And that the admixture plant is relatively new, like the admixture plant of adding the dmt plant or the chakruna was probably within the last several hundred years mm-hmm. but that the the, the mixture itself or, or rather the medicine itself of the vine was probably used between five and ten thousand years
0: ago mm. yeah and that book you're referring to is the cosmic serpent and it's interesting that they talk about these two snakes in dna and i know this is jeremy sort of thing but to bring it To maybe a more broader point, we have the supposed discoverers of the DNA sequence having a revelation on LSD. We have, you know, this ancient connection to the DNA. And then also, you know, cannabis is sort of well known for this, but ayahuasca as well. These plants seem to be like puzzle pieces that fit into our brain's chemistry. They're not, you know like alcohol, where it just sort of shuts the system down and we're sort of having this feeling of like, oh, you know, from a, a maybe more of what you could call entropy being put into effect. These are, these are you know, like I said, puzzle pieces. They fit in and, and cause an experience that seems to be primordial. It seems to be ancient. So when I hear stuff about the DMT jesters or what are they called the uh, machine elves right i know this is more dmt phenomena but when it comes to ayahuasca is there a sort of common story of experience i mean with your foundation i'm sure you've probably heard a bunch of people's experiences is there a sort of common theme and do you think that is you know connected to who we are as human beings as like a an ancient like is it talking to us on an ancient level
1: yeah well i mean i i love where you're going with this i want to like take it further um you know I guess there's a a few things going on one we need to recognize that we're from a a paradigm of reality that is very distinct from the indigenous paradigms that still to this day use substances like ayahuasca at the heart of their understanding of the world and reality and and that's like a big challenge for us but um, but all of our ancestry you know, your ancestors, my ancestors, every single human being had ancestors that worked with the paradigm that we now recognize to be the indigenous paradigm. I refer to it as the ancestral paradigm because of that, like everyone for a hundred thousand years, you know, all humans relied on plant medicine and they were intimately connected with nature. And, and we still recognize that today, you know, we, we, look at animals uh, with a, with that same understanding that they're like intimately connected with nature they're a part of nature they have instincts right so how does the you know how does the elephant know to do this or how does the bird know to migrate like where it goes 5000 miles or you know whatever it is, we, we can like refer to its connection to nature as an explanation. But yeah, we don't really view ourselves as having instincts anymore. We don't really recognize that we are connected to nature in that same way that we recognize all living beings outside of the human race as having, mm-hmm. which is a real shame and detriment. And that's not part of the indigenous paradigm. They don't see themselves as disconnected. They still see themselves as connected. And that connection is expressed through their interactions and communications with the spirits of those plants plants and animals that they have access to because of using shamanic traditions centered around the use of psychedelic plants like ayahuasca so what i love to imagine is that we're now like coming back to that but at the same time i have such a tremendous respect for the wisdom of the earth like i view the earth as a living being as an organism and and that organism is tremendously complex Just as we recognize ourselves to be complex, you yourself are made of 50 to 100 trillion individual cells, you know, individual human cells. And each one of those cells is made of 50 to 100 trillion atoms, just one cell. So we know that we're like, unfathomably complicated. And we've tried to understand a lot of what it means to be a human being to be alive. I wish that there was more attention given to consciousness. But even if you just look at biology, like, it's clear that there's so much happening, you know, and, and all these pieces come together and all these tiny little things and messaging and communication and cells appear here and there and they go and they travel and they do what they need to do. And like, it's all amazing. Even if you were the smartest biologist, there would just be some miracle at work when you're trying to understand just one simple organism. And so we are also like a single cell or a single atom in the body of this giant organism that is the earth. And so the earth, I don't think like made a mistake. You know, I I don't think that The human race's departure, at least Western civilization's departure, away from the ancestral perspective was a mistake. I actually think that it's just something that we're not capable of understanding simply because we're just too infinitesimally small in the grand picture of things. And I liken that to what pregnancy might look like from a cellular consciousness level. You know what I mean? Like if you are a single cell in the body of a woman and you've lived for, you know, however, 25, 30 years or something, everything going like pretty much smoothly, you feel like you have an idea about what this creature is. And then all of a sudden these new hormones show up, you know, all of this stuff starts showing up that seems to be like infiltrated and going in a totally wrong direction and starts like building this giant project over here in the belly and you're like what the hell are you doing like that's not how it goes you know and they're like hey whatever whatever like you, you know just keep you keep doing your thing I'm doing mine over here you know and you're like no man this, something's really wrong like you see what's happening over here it looks totally wrong we got to do something about this we got to get it back to the way it was you know and then eventually of course the baby is produced and then gives earth and then you're like oh shit that was an incredible thing like wow I guess I I didn't really understand what was happening but it, it looked like it was going really wrong there right you know and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like the departure of the human race away from that ancestral paradigm in order to do what we have done which is accelerate technology and build a bunch of shit that we kind of feel like is messing it up because we're comparing it to the way we imagine the world to have operated for you know the the entirety of its existence prior to this departure and and i guess i what i think is that the earth is like in the middle of a birthing process and and we're we just don't understand it but that the earth will give birth to something and perhaps that needs to be you know sending spaceships to other planets to 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 seed life on other planets just as For example, the ayahuasca vine produces these delicate flowers, after which it produces an aeronautic vehicle that looks like the wing of a helicopter with a seed in it, and that helicopter seed falls off the vine and flies away with this helicopter flight to a distant part of the forest to to plant the seed. So plants create aeronautic vehicles to disperse their seeds far away and is that what the earth does too? But the earth's so peculiar that it doesn't produce this like helicopter seed. It produces more like a rocket ship that gets launched out to another planet to seed that planet. And in order to do that, it needs like this departure, you know, it needs people to like kind of look like they're fucking shit up, but they're actually still following the plan that is this infinite wisdom and guidance of the consciousness of the planet. How's that for an idea?
0: Brilliant. Wow. I mean, geez, Carlos, you're certainly an expert in something. Yeah, I, I mean, and I would see myself in that sort of conservative side of the equation there as a, as a singular cell in the body as that new organism is being formed. And that's such a beautiful analogy there like the the idea that you know the liver is like hey what's going on why are we diverting all these resources to this thing you know not really fully understanding the totality of what it's a part of bringing a new life into the world as a you know one component of this larger being that is a a woman right so in that same sense the earth gaia has, yeah, probably a tremendous amount of different things that we as people on the earth would interpret maybe as bad, volcanoes, earthquakes, all sorts of cataclysmic events. I mean, is that no different than a woman in the throes of uh, pregnancy, right, about to give birth? I mean, that you might think she's about to die, and that certainly could happen, depending on, you know, where you are in time and, and human a civilization you know they say now it's the best time in the world to give birth because it, child infant mortality is at a historic low but we're also saying oh we're overpopulating the planet and then there's people who are creating rockets to go to other places i mean to bring it to that side of what you just said if you look at a ufo what we're talking about with ufos or Any of these spacecraft, they all do kind of look like seeds. I mean, if you want to take that macrocosm and shrink it down to a microcosm, look around our world and the small things, the way they operate. I mean, that's brilliant. You know, I I can totally see the, the phenomena of a flying saucer, even an asteroid if we want to take things you know, stay within the scientific perspective of what the general audience will accept as true, an asteroid is very much like a seed, right? You you have this concoction of minerals and all sorts of different types of ice and who knows what else, and they just get bombarded into the surface of the planet. There are crystals that only are on Earth because of meteorite impacts. So, yeah, I mean, this is really... Profound now when it comes to this common language in psychedelics Do you think there is one do you think we're sort of stepping into a sort of contained process or larger consciousness that is the earth's consciousness and we're sort of experiencing the you know larger consciousness of the the cell the same way maybe like the one celled organism in the tip of my finger could conceivably get some acid on it and have that experience that I'm having of an LSD experience with me. Like, is that kind of, is that making any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I,
1: that's why I I feel like there is this, um, Renaissance or revolution or explosion of, of psychedelic awareness now. Um, you know, if I'm going to keep with that metaphor, it's, You know, we, the earth wants us to have an expanded amount of awareness at this time and and so it like kept, you know, it, it kept these cultures intact long enough to make sure that it wasn't lost. And now it's like time for us to to come back into a higher level of awareness where we will, I think, offen- essentially like recover the health uh, of the earth, you know, to, to bring back that connection. Because the the birth is at that point, you know, where we're maybe like in labor at this point, like we're going to do it. The seeds will be dispersed. But after the pregnancy, after the birth, there is a recovery. You know, that whole new, like, plan is put into action. And, and that, to me, is, like, what we're kind of seeing is this transition towards a plan of recovery once the, the birthing has happened or the seeds are dispersed or something like that. But, I mean, to, to take that to the, like, you said micro macro, I mean, you can go, like, triple macro or whatever, because if you look at the way our solar system is, it definitely looks very atomic, at least the way we were taught, you know, what an atomic structure looks like. We've got a nucleus and we've got electrons that are uh, orbiting the nucleus, you know, so is our planet, this single organism was infinitely wise of which we are just this minuscule part, just one electron in one atom of which there are 50 to 100 trillion of them in one cell, and 50 to 100 trillion of cell of those cells in the universe and is that the ultimate you know that's what i would call god is that living being that i imagine the universe to be that is the collection of those 100 trillion cells each made of 100 trillion solar systems and however many planets are those electrons you know um so all of that like to me is like super duper fascinating for sure but it's also just kind of a creative way to evade feeling anxious and, and stressed and worried about the future because i i feel like very very uh, it's easy for me to trust that the earth knows exactly what she's doing and then i can just kind of look at the world with curiosity to see how it will all play out but i'm you know i'm not worried mm-hmm. i'm just uh you know fascinated by by the whole process and so is there a, a language to try to get back to this question that you came back to really well by the way um I definitely think so. With ayahuasca, there's definitely a lot of similarities. But I think that what's interesting to to note is that each person's experience is unique. And so much of it is reliant on a person's already intact consciousness already intact perspective. Um, and so sometimes you like radically transform your perspective, but most of the times you work within who you are, essentially, you know, like, you come to be a certain way and you come to interpret the world a certain way and you know some of us become painters and some become engineers and some become doctors and some you know whatever we we decide to do it's all this you know truly unfathomable collaboration and 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 combination of influences and conditions and things like that and and so you're always working within that and and so the messaging that you're receiving To me, like is what I would imagine the messaging of my own cellular activity to be like, you know, my, my consciousness isn't sending the same message to all of my cells. Like you brought up the liver, like my liver's getting like a whole different agenda than my heart. You know, there's similarities that I want everybody to be on the same page. I guess you know, I want everybody to be in it together, work together as as well as possible. But they certainly aren't getting the specifics of their plan. You know, like those are going to be very very unique, and they need to be. And and so you know, one person can can leave. A treatment with ayahuasca and have a plan and and that plan might be like totally different than another person that was in the same ceremonies and going through the same treatment with them because we all have our own specific unique role to play and and that to me is just like another further element of fascination but at the core of it to me there is this one obvious part which is that interconnectivity and you know i think that A lot of people in Western culture are now suffering from the effects of uh, an inaccurate understanding of their existence, where we feel and we were brought up to feel, not intentionally, but brought up to believe that we are essentially alone, that I'm, you know, just on, happen to be on this rock with you, this, you know, this, this floating planet around. And we're all just like, on our own, in competition for survival, you know, that we're not part of the earth but that we happen to be cohabitating the earth at the same time and and that's like a really big distinction from that ancestral paradigm that i feel like is contributing to a lot of people feeling anxiety and depression in their lives because they don't feel like they have that support that true support you know like on a on a planetary scale and when you do feel that you're connected or rather you know that you're connected and part of something that's tremendously miraculous in its power strength and wisdom then i feel like there's automatically a reduction of that depression and anxiety simply because you know that hey i'm i'm supported like no matter what the earth has my back you know she's my my mom my true mother, the, the the earth of which I am is always like guiding me exactly the way I should be. And, and then that perspective opens you up to the intention to connect the intention to be aware of that connection. And then through that, we gain a better sense, or we recuperate that sense of instinct that we've lost through our lack of recognition or ignorance about that interconnectivity you know what I mean
0: absolutely yeah wow so to take it to the individual listening you know I'm sure many people have listened to a conversation like this and they're thinking wow this is something I want to try you know not everybody is called to it I'm particularly not called to it at this point in my life I have a tremendous amount of respect and fascination for the sacred ayahuasca. But at the same time, I'm not particularly feeling called to it at this point in my life. But, you know, for those who may be, what do you recommend? Do you do you think that there is a, a reason? Like, do you think that people who are being called to this plant have a purpose to fulfill? Or is it something that, you know, you, you would recommend people not just jump on an opportunity to do and maybe take more consideration before they do something like this? Yeah, that's a great question, actually.
1: Um, you know, I do integration counseling. And and for all the people that come down to the Ayahuasca Foundation to do a retreat, I schedule a preparation counseling call with them. And then after the retreat, I do an integration counseling call with them. And the preparation call, I always feel like my my goal is to try to get them to the highest level of trust and faith in their decision to do it, you know, because I I, I recognize that that mindset of, you know, when you know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then whatever happens, you're always going to be at the highest likelihood of interpretation towards that goal you know where if as if if you're trying something out you know then if you have a part of the process is a negative experience or an unpleasant experience then you're more likely to maybe say oh shit I mean, maybe i was wrong about this you know or like go into some negative interpretation about it that could become a hindrance or interfere with your with your path towards your goal in that sense you know I would recommend that everyone that's considering doing ayahuasca or any other psychedelic experience or really entering into any process that they want to have the outcome be some benefit for their well-being, a healing process or an improvement process, that you want to get yourself to the point where you feel so strongly that you know that it's the best step forward, the best path to take. And and if you're not sure, then, you know, I would recommend doing things to try to get yourself to that point of surety. So for some people that would be to read books or to do more research, you know, to watch videos, to listen to podcasts like this one. Uh, for some people i i think that it might be to get out into nature like i think that the interconnectivity is such an important part of the future of human consciousness and what the ancestral traditions provide above all else is that right uh reminder recognition of that interconnectivity so getting out into nature you know like I think you're more inclined to find yourself wanting to take mushrooms when you're walking around in a forest than you are when you're walking down a city street, you know. So if you're trying to figure out whether or not that might be a, a good decision, then get yourself out into the forest, you know, see what the trees have to think about it, see what the squirrel says, you know, and. Um, and and really try to like feel that out because i do think that it's harder for us to make that connection to reconnect with ourselves as a being in nature a part of nature when we are surrounded by maybe non-natural elements like living in a city or being down in the noise of of traffic or streets as a pair as opposed to the the sounds of nature when we find ourselves you know immersed in a forest or something like that so if you're feeling like Man, I, I, I think I want to do something like this, but I'm not sure. Then, can you get away for a weekend? You know, can you like take yourself out of the, the human side of life and, and put yourself back into the, the nature as much as possible and, and then see what you feel? You know, ultimately, every person needs to be guided by their own intuition, their own feelings, what feels right. and And if it feels right, then trust that feeling. No matter what happens, you know, because the reality of psychedelics, especially with ayahuasca, is that it's not always pleasant. Uh, It's almost a guarantee that some part of it won't be pleasant. But if you also think about transformation, it's hard to imagine that transformation is this pleasant experience. You know, it's it's when I imagine transformation, I kind of imagine like. I don't know, somebody in a movie, you know, where they're like, like, but they end up like with being a superhero or something afterward. And, you know, and so your willingness to accept that, that troubling challenging part where you're going from your previous self to your true self or your desired self, if you're willing to accept that there will be challenges in that, then, You know, you're going to put yourself in the best mindset to make that
0: a reality for you. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to South America, you've given some pro tips for travelers. Iquito sounds like a destination that would be pretty obvious considering the amount of of places you can go, the retreat centers. Are there any, you know, maybe lesser known places you would recommend people travel to even if they're not interested in partaking in ayahuasca i mean it sounds like peru is somewhere you call a second home now how often do you go down there and and do you have any places you would recommend people visit
1: yeah well i lived in peru for 16 years i have a, a wife who's peruvian our daughter was born in peru but we moved here back to the u.s when my when my daughter was four so that she could start school here which we felt was and, and I think we made a great choice in doing so, like the best decision. So I still run the Ayahuasca Foundation. I will go back in less than a month back to Peru. And so I go back four times a year. I'll spend like six weeks there. Um, so I, I'm like bounce back and forth now um, so that my daughter can be in school here. And so we we, we live with my dad here in, in Massachusetts, but um, but I still have a house in oh, Iquitos.
0: Wow. I'm in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Very cool. New Englander. Right
1: yeah, definitely <laughs> um. So, yeah, there's so many places. Peru is an unbelievably incredible country, like, so fascinating. And even just, like, in the world of shamanism, it's so fascinating. There's, like, all these different types of shamanism. Out of those, like, 108 tribes I mentioned, the vast majority of them are in Peru. Mm. Um, So, Peru is not just an epicenter for ayahuasca, although that's totally true, but also for San Pedro, also for Coca, which is a whole other world of shamanism. Um, There's, like, so many really, really fat. Like with San Pedro, that that history goes back like 5,000 years. There's ruins that have San Pedro temples. And, you know, like that, I I wish that I knew more about that to talk about it. I don't, but I just know that it is also like a tremendously deep and well-developed plant medicine tradition Mm. so many uh plant medicine traditions and and so much culture are in peru and so now like iquitos is is the hub of ayahuasca tourism but it's spread out you know around the whole the whole region and and a little bit into colombia definitely into ecuador a little on the outskirts of uh, the brazilian peru border um but, but mostly it is Peru. But now it's like there's centers in Pucallpa um, where the Shipibo are. So there's quite a few centers there and Tarapoto. And then of course, because Cusco is where Machu Picchu is, there's a lot going on in Cusco. Right near Cusco is the Sacred Valley, Pisac. Um, so there's a lot of centers there. Um, that's not really like where, that those aren't in the rainforest, you know? So they're kind of bringing it out to towards the 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 highest um, places of tourism but you know even there it's not to say that you're not going to have a good experience just because of that and so there's a lot of different places. I would definitely recommend just doing a, a good amount of research or talking to people that have already been, you know, it, before you decide what, what fits best for you. Some people know they want to go to Machu Picchu, so it's it's more convenient to try to, like, find a center that's close by. Other people will, will would rather do it in the most authentic experience possible. And, you know, again, like, you're just led by, by your intuition. Some people feel maybe apprehensive about going into... Uh, like a truly indigenous setting whereas they want to have like a balance between indigenous people working together with westerners and some people trust westerners more because of the language barrier or because of our conditioning or whatever you know i mean it's really just our you and my generation that's starting to or has gotten to a point where we truly respect the wisdom of indigenous people even when you go back just one generation indigenous people were kind of looked at as primitive um now we're kind of flipping that in an interesting way where we recognize ourselves to be the primitive ones at least spiritually and in so many other ways and we respect the wisdom of the indigenous people so right. you know everyone's at somewhere on that spectrum of uh of conditioning you know and um and so again you just like work with who you are and and how
0: you are and trust your
1: feelings and you just do your best to feel it out.
0: Right. Right. And yeah, we've, we've heard the whole spectrum here. I've had a, a person on the show who's gone down to the uh, ayahuasca church in Florida numerous amount of times and has had a good experience, but was a little disappointed in the more modern vibe and is probably looking to go down to Peru when it comes to the tribes and the various amount of tribes the the two that are mentioned in the way of the shaman shaman are the Kanibo and the Hivaro right and and those sort of like you said are one of of hundreds of tribes that are doing these things shamanistic practices when it comes to ayahuasca it seems like we in the american world have a certain idea of what this plant is right it's it's it causes a certain effect and and people are sort of thinking of it as like a, a transformation for their life not necessarily a rite of passage but are these plants used in that context and and you know, what is the actual traditional context? Because, I, I mean, shamans are healers, so they're dealing with sick people primarily, not, you know, 20-something-year-olds who want to, you know, go into another dimension, right? right. So, so what's, the, what's the true traditional context that the tribes are using these plants, particularly ayahuasca, but others as well? Oh,
1: man, that's, a, that, I, I'm going to reframe the question. But um, yeah, because true, the true tradition, I don't know if anyone can answer that question. Um, but yes, they've been used for pretty much everything. So, you know, it's not so simple to just say one thing or another, although I've heard many things like that. Um, you bring up a lot of like interesting points. One, of course, the word corandero, um, why it's used over shaman, well, first shaman is a word that comes from Europe, um, but corandero comes from the root word curar, which means to cure, to heal. So it's literally like a healer, one who cures. So as a doctor, um, so yeah, like to have someone want to go to a doctor, uh, when they're not sick is a, is a strange concept, you know, today, um, It would, because if you, like, if you're in Iquitos or you're in Pucallpa or you're in some region where, like, ayahuasca traditions are, have have existed for a long time, almost everyone you meet has drank ayahuasca. If they're old enough, you know, like, you're not going to, like, a a 20-year-old might not have drank ayahuasca, but if you talk to, like, a 50-year-old, chances are they drank ayahuasca. At some point, they went to a curandero. Why? Because they were sick. You know, because they they needed help. And even if they went to the doctor, the doctor couldn't help them. So they they went and they had like their uncle's cousin or something, you know, like they, somebody in their family, like knew somebody or was a cornedero. But they don't describe it like some magical experience. Usually they're like, I never want to do that again. I hope I never have to do that again. You know, <laughs> um, but they were healed. You know, that's kind of the key point. But then within that, and I would say that's probably a newer phenomenon because of Ayahuasca tourism, people are like, yeah, I I wanted to see what it was about, you know? So there's like a, also a a curiosity that motivates people. But again, like I want to go to who's the OG for me again, Richard Evan Schultes, because I just don't think anyone has the qualifications the same as him. He spent 14 years in the Amazon living with indigenous tribes in the 40s and 50s you know so it, there was no such thing as ayahuasca tourism that wasn't like even a conception so I, I feel like he really did have the most accurate opportunity for observation and and then he also wrote several books and you know he was an ethnobotanist he was a very well-educated person tr- uh, curator of the harvard botanical Muse- uh, garden and So I trust him, you know, I trust his opinion. And interestingly enough, which definitely is like, I don't know, controversial for some reason, but he talked about how people would drink ayahuasca because they were sick. People would drink ayahuasca as a rite of passage. People would drink ayahuasca for guidance uh, and, you know, because they were struggling with a decision or confused about what to do. Uh, And people would drink ayahuasca recreationally. And that last part is the controversial part. You know, you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say that you drink ayahuasca recreationally. Like that, you're supposed to say it's a sacred medicine. But, and, and I'm not knocking that. I believe in wholeheartedly. I know it to be the sacred medicine that it is. It's really saved my life. But I think it was interesting from an indigenous perspective that it was really just an all-purpose experience an ayahuasca ceremony was almost like whatever (laughs) whatever you want you can the ayahuasca ceremony will help and and that's kind of like what I view it as, and and now as the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation, I would say that a lot of people come down for that reason. I'm I'm really thankful that people don't come down to our center for recreational purposes. Um, I'd like to think that even if they do, we help to shape that so that they do understand the potential benefit for it, and and helps change their intentions towards recognizing that potential and and desiring to have uh, benefit from it but even that term recreational is is confusing you know um but because we, i think because we tie it up with with like what i was doing with with my heroin addiction which was you know to try to cover up my pain and and so was i like using heroin recreationally Well, I don't know. I think I was probably trying to use it like medicinally, except that my idea of what a medicine should do is alleviate symptoms, Mm. instead of cure the cause. And, and so, you know, if you were to put it into the proper perspective, like probably people that are that we might say are, are using something recreationally, there probably is a root cause there. It's it's just maybe not expressible because we don't have that language in our culture, at least appropriately. So I don't even know. But but yeah, I would say it's, you know, I don't know if there's a real true traditional purpose for it other than like whatever you need, this will help because you'll be able to expand your awareness and in a state of expanded awareness whatever you're trying to do will be more accomplishable
0: Mm. yeah and i pose that question kind of facetiously because i do understand the cultural differences and i I think that you know i i have this quote on my website for a reason it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society and uh, a hindu gentleman whose name i can't pronounce But his name is listed on the website is is responsible for saying that really brilliant phrase. And I think the reason why maybe there is that cultural difference where people who live in this area where this is endogenous, you know, they're only sort of thinking of it as a true medicine that you would receive when you're sick. You know, people in our society, in our American society, we're sick. You know, there's a sickness that pervades our our society, call it witico call it, you know, the drug war, call it government corruption, whatever facet you want to look at, there is a disharmony in the United States and the Western English speaking world, for the most part, you know, not some countries excluded, but for the most part, right? And, and I think that's why we see tremendous amounts of people flocking to these areas, and then obviously becomes sort of a capitalistic influence There's this sort of tourist thing going on. I remember, and, and let, let me let you respond to that. If you have anything to say, cause I'm about to take it in a whole nother direction. Yeah. So sure. well, I
1: appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like another element, I talked about the interconnectivity, but maybe on a singular identity aspect where we, we, we kind of look at it from an outside in perspective where, you know, we're our, we're a body. And and then if we even recognize spirit, we would we would say we have a spirit, or we're you know we're we're a body, and then we have consciousness. And you know the ancestral perspective would be the opposite, where we are a spirit, we are consciousness, and then we have a body. And and I think that when spirit was removed, and I kind of want to say it was systematically removed. You talked, you just mentioned capitalism, man. There's nothing better for capitalism than to remove spirit from our understanding of our own identity, mm. because then we're much more likely to try to buy our way into filling that hole that's left by our uh uh, lack of awareness of spirit and so that also contributes to the this like tourism movement where we see spirit in another culture we we remember like the ancestral uh paradigm and and so we we seek it out because we have this internal yearn rightfully so to like replace or fill that void that was removed when we lost spirit from our vocabulary of identity and and so you know i do feel like the return of spirit into our recognition which is weird because i mean you can't even say like spirit and science together you know um i i do feel like our probably like rightful uh rejection of religious oppression which kind of sent us on the road of spirit Oh uh, mm-hmm. sorry science on the road of science well, was unfortunately what pushed us away from spirit but hopefully now like we'll be able to come back and reconcile and have spirit and science be one in the same, because not, I mean, oddly enough, or not coincidentally, the way they refer to the body of knowledge that is plant medicine in the Amazon is the science. Like what is, this is the science, you know, but it's the science of plant spirit communication and collaboration for healing. Mm -hmm. And and so if we can get ourselves towards that, and I do feel like this new like psychedelic revolution is going to be our best step forward towards that, then maybe we'll be able to alleviate a lot of the illness that you mentioned that exists in our culture.
0: Right, right. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think that the time is now. I mean, we're we're here in this new world. We see plants sort of... Taking a stand, getting respect, becoming legal in some states now. I mean, obviously, it's recognized in in some states as a religious right, which is great. So, yeah, there are so many changing factors, and I think in some way, the plants are initiating this in a sort of feedback loop sort of way. You know, they they are the question is it the chicken or the egg? You know, we can argue about that for on and on and on, but I think the metaphor there is, like, where did it start? Did it start with uh, consciousness coming through the plant or the plant, you know, bringing us into the consciousness of it? Like, it's, it's a mystery. Now, I have to ask you, because you're on this show, does your family think you're crazy for what you're doing, with the foundation, all the great work you're doing, they can't think you're crazy, right, Carlos? <laughs> well, I, I mean, crazy
1: has a lot of, uh, there's a wide spectrum to define that word. But yeah, my family definitely thinks I'm crazy. But, <laughs> but like in a really great way, um, thankfully. I think that, it's taken, you know, I've, I'm like almost 20 years in now to to like the diversion of my life path. Um, so I think that I've been able to kind of prove to them that what I'm doing like is meaningful and and deserving of respect. And thankfully, like I, I have wonderful relations with everyone in my family, but yeah, they still think I'm crazy. They're, I mean, they all went into, I have three brothers, they all went into banking, like, they were all, like, investment advisors and bankers, and uh, it's such a crazy different world than me, um, but... But they've all been down and done an ayahuasca retreat. My oldest brother came back again last year and did a retreat with me uh, last year. And my dad has been down and um, did a retreat, which was crazy to imagine that. And to sit in a ceremony, look over and your dad is sitting there and your brothers are sitting there. Um, Yeah, it's been an an amazing journey. But so I would say maybe they think I'm less crazy now, (laughs) but still crazy. I think I'm crazy. But in the, in the best of ways, I mean, everyone that's done something that seemed impossible was crazy, right? Mm, and, exactly. And, and then we're so thankful for all of those crazy people.
0: Well said, well said. And that is really, really touching. Yeah, I, I have shared a smoke with my father once. We've We've sort of broke broke bread together i guess over smoking cannabis only once and he does he probably doesn't smoke anymore because of his job but that was a big thing for him when he was my age so i haven't haven't quite had that level of experience but there is something to that you know that i think in our modern society it's sad that there is that separation you know it's it's kind of rare that you have a family that tokes together or you know typically I mean drinking together is very common but not drinking ayahuasca not drinking something nearly as sacred as that so wow that's that's really profound I think that's how it how it should be and that's probably how it it was in the past where your family kind of ushered you into these situations or your community was your family in these tribal situations now I do have maybe a couple weird questions Given that you've spent so much time in Peru, the first time I ever interacted with the Amazon rainforest, I was a young, probably eight or nine years old, and my second cousin, much older than me, is a a wildlife photographer or was at some point in his life. So he spent time in Africa, South America, and many other places. And one of the things that he gave me was a shrunken head. (laughs) and and these this tribe that I mentioned before the uh, Hivaro they're known for their ayahuasca use but they're also known for these shrunken heads so I mean what what's the deal with these is this just sort of like a sort of kitschy kind of touristy thing that made its way to America because it's so bizarre is there an actual spiritual or esoteric significance to this and uh, is it at all related to ayahuasca or is this just a total outlier Oh
1: man <laughs> um, my my first teacher Don Juan, he lived with the Achuari Indians or the Achuari tribe. Um, the Atuari is the Peruvian name for the Hebero. The he- Hebrewo is actually a kind of a derogatory term to be honest um that, I apologize. No no no, no they was given as a name for that tribe. Um, but their true name is either Shuar, if they're in the Ecuador side, or Achuari. They're okay. both the same tribe, but when the country division happened, their pronunciations and their language started to shift just because they ended up being like in different countries, uh, which is kind of weird. But my f- my first teacher lived with them for a few years, and he learned how to shrink heads. Um, they were badass warriors, and that's why they were given the name Hebrew, which is really like a word that means savages. So it wasn't like a derogatory term in the sense of like a racist term. Um, it was a, it was like a recognition of just like how badass hmm, they were. Sort of like know? the Mohawks up where we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly like that. Um, uh-huh. And so... You know, they were just badass warriors. And one of the reasons why they were so badass is because they would shrink heads. So, like, they would, if they won a a battle or something, they would cut the head off of the person. And then there was this crazy process to like boil the head so to loosen the skin so they could get the skull to come out but still keep the face features or whatever and you'd know, have to like sew up the eye holes and the sew up like the mouth and stuff and then they'd bury it with these herbs and stuff so that it would all sh- i mean it was like this crazy art form to shrink the head and then they'd tie that on their belt so if you can imagine like you're like in battle or something with this other tribe and like some dude runs at you and he's got fucking 10 human heads swinging around off of his belt, you know, like it would be pretty really intimidating. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that, I mean, my guess is that if
0: you got one, that's not real. No, of course not. It was yeah. plastic. It was, yeah, it was yeah, like okay, a, yeah. yeah, it was like something that kids would, you know, get at a, you know, museum shop or something like that. But I, I think he got it in Peru as, as like a souvenir. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I've seen them. Um, there's a shop right in the
1: Plaza de Armas of Iquitos that sells. I mean, I, I'm like always like, I think you could stop making these cause he's got like 80 of them hanging on the ceiling. I'm like, you know, are you still making them? Because you can stop. And you've got plenty. <laughs> um, like, it doesn't seem like it's a big seller for this uh, little tourist shop. But, yeah, I mean, that, those were real up until my teacher who passed away. But, you know, I think they, they, they were doing it up until, like, the 60s. You know, not uh-huh. that... Not that long ago, like 60 years ago, they were still doing it.
0: Yeah. And is there any sort of like, you know, because we see this in other cultures with like reverence for bones and other, you know, like skulls particularly, but is there like an esoteric or metaphysical significance to this or is it purely just a practice, you know, war? No, uh, well, that's a good question. I'm not an expert
1: on it at all. My basic understanding of it, and that's really just from the com- conversations I had with my teacher, mm. who who lived with the Achuaris, like I said, and I actually drank ayahuasca with the chief of the Atuwahi tribe one time, um, but I didn't speak to him. In fact, I couldn't speak to him because I didn't. We didn't speak the same language. Right. But um, and he what, he didn't show up <laughs> with any shrunken heads. Um, <laughs> I, I my understanding is that it's really just for warriors. It it wasn't like involved in their shamanic practice. But of course, there's kind of like a crossover between that, um, just because, you know, the shamanic practice would include any soul, you know, any spirit. And, you know, so I, I imagine that you could probably have called the shrinking of the heads and even the decision to have the battle. And all of that would would still kind of fall into the realm of shamanism. It's not like it's right. Not they like were Western medicine where you just have like your doctor is, is at the hospital. You right, know,
0: right, right. They were central figures in the community. They were they were very much a, a part of a lot of the decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I just bring this up as like a a curiosity because it is so strange. And then also tangentially, I'm researching something more specific to our area, Yale University and their secret societies. We have the most infamous one, Skull and Bones, and their practice of, of collecting skulls. So any sort of head decapitating, anything like that, I'm I'm just interested in in learning about because it's it's just kind of gruesome and why are they doing it, right? You know, and and one particular the the gentleman I mentioned earlier, a mentor of mine who taught me about tobacco and cannabis and and why I was using them incorrectly and, and sort of so taught me about his perspective and his culture. He was very much there in New Haven because of the Skull and Bones and Geronimo and how Skull and Bones allegedly took Geronimo's skull from his grave, right? This sort of grave robbing, and that has its own shamanic implications you know the desecration of someone's grave is a tremendous uh disrespect and anyways I don't mean to take you down that tangent but that's kind of where I became interested in a lot of this stuff uh right out of college I was studying anthropology I thought I would get an anthropology uh education with a liberal arts degree I sort of realized that was Not in the cards and dropped out, but what I did gain from that experience was a lot of interest in in these subjects. And yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're here to share all this information with me, Carlos. I can see you coming back on the show again very soon. I'd love to continue this conversation with you and maybe go deeper on the psychedelic experience itself and what you do with... Folks that come to the ayahuasca foundation but real briefly could you just uh let people know a little bit about the ayahuasca foundation why they would get in touch and uh, where they should go when they do
1: yeah man I appreciate you again having me on the show I'd love to come back again there's you know Thank it's you. a topic that you could go on and on and on about yeah I'd love to have uh, another conversation too about you know how best to prepare for a psychedelic experience and and what integration is and and maybe offer some pieces of advice on the mechanics of that because that's I think like an important part yeah. that your listeners might benefit from um, but yeah the Ayahuasca Foundation we're located outside of Iquitos Peru if you go to ayahuascafoundation.com Um, You'll find our website and you can learn about the programs that we offer, which are a 10 and 18 day retreats and then a four week and eight week educational courses. Um, We have been hosting research at our center for the last five years. That was uh, published in the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry last year. We're continuing another five years of studies that we magically got the funding for. So we're going to try our best to increase the awareness of the potential for healing with sacred medicines like ayahuasca and the ayahuasca tradition i think one thing that i've started to talk about too if i can close on this is um is how this paradigm shift that i i want to be more and more a part of and i feel like it's a necessity within our understanding of reality especially with regard to medicine is that we need to remember that healing and medicine is an art form and i think we've gotten kind of caught up in thinking that the medicine just does it by itself and what shamanism reminds us of is that this is is a collaboration it's a dance between an artist and the materials that they use and you know you would never say well the guitar plays the music. You know, the guitar makes the the music sound the way that it does. But it's ultimately the musician that plays the guitar that really makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And and ayahuasca is very similar to that. Uh, it's it's kind of done in a performance. It, the ceremony is is a performance, and and the performer really makes the ayahuasca work. It it, it makes the ayahuasca make the music that it does and. And, and I think that understanding would go a long, long way if we were to relate that to all of our medical practices and to recognize the art form that it is. And the true art is the way that we interact with that experience. Just like when you're looking at a painting, my experience looking at it will be different than yours. And that's the beauty of the art. You know, that's, that's the true meaning of that art is that interaction of our experience and and so we're a, a very important part there is no art without the person experiencing it then the artist themselves is also a very important part so you can't just understand medicine from the material you have to also recognize the artist and yourself and that
0: collaboration
1: is what really makes healing happen
0: Wow, well said. I love that concept. Carlos Tanner, you're amazing. This has been so much fun. I'd love to have you back on to go further in depth. We kind of went all over the place, is a great way to get to know each other and for my audience to get to know you and and the amazing world that you're a part of down there. And it's so cool to be able to connect with this other half of the Americas. It's something that I want to do more often is to stretch out branch out and connect with people in in different parts of the world because as a fellow new englander i'm sure you know it can be a little cramped up here on the east side of the hudson river so here we are on the my family Thinks I'm crazy podcast with carlos tanner founder of the ayahuasca foundation and wow thank you so much carlos for being here and thank you listeners enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now all right, here we are. My family thinks I'm crazy podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And what an episode Carlos Tanner. I didn't even know that we're both new Englanders, but if you spend that much time in South America, are you really a new Englander? A little bit of both at that point. either way. Great conversation with Carlos Tanner. Really awesome guy really amazing stuff that he's done in his lifetime and uh i'm sure he'll be back on the show for another conversation because i definitely want to learn more and he's going to be traveling back to south america and he'll be back in august so maybe august or september you'll see another conversation with carlos tanner go to the ayahuasca foundation's website to learn more If you just type in Ayahuasca Foundation, it's uh, undoubtedly going to be the first thing that comes up. If you're using DuckDuckGo, hopefully, it should be right there at the top. I don't know what will happen if you use Google. I don't use Google. I use alternative platforms. And, yeah, I know what you black pill folks are going to say. Well, DuckDuckGo, that's, you know, owned by this. Uh, Yeah, maybe. But, you know what? They don't censor my search results. So, I'm going to use them for now. And if you listen to this podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or some other platform that's not a decentralized app, well, you're not doing yourself any favors. So help yourself out. Stay in touch with this podcast. You never know what could happen. Apple might say, oh, yeah, we don't like this episode. Delete it. They might even, you know, do that on Spotify. So in order to make sure that doesn't happen, go over to an alternative platform you can go to the podcast index website and find a whole bunch of apps that use the podcast 2.0 index and yeah that's the best way to stay in touch with this show with a podcast app i personally like podcast addict uh, i don't think that podcast addict is on the apple store so you might need to use a different one i think podverse is another option for those of you with an apple phone iphone Anyways, please, and thank you for being here, but please go and uh, sign up for the Telegram. Get in touch with like-minded folks, other people who listen to the show. We're all talking, we're all sharing our thoughts. Recently, we had a friend uh, share some pictures of some clouds, some mysterious clouds And uh, he got a very cool nickname in the telegram. And if you like that kind of thing, go over to our Patreon. Everybody who signs up to the Patreon gets a spirit animal name. I don't do the spirit animal names on the free version of the show, I guess, anymore. I kind of just do a once a month Patreon thank you show where I talk about all kinds of stuff that I learned about that month. And I also give you all spirit animal names. So sign up for the Patreon. Stay tuned for that. And please leave us a message. If you do and you send us a donation, I will play your voice message on the show. All right. That's all, folks. Thank you for being here and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Peace.